Well, welcome to our uh, study in the eternal rewards. And uh, we're looking at uh, study number eight, which is the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, I'm going to do this in two parts. So this, is, uh, this message then is the judgment seat of Christ. And this is uh, the first part. And uh, one of the things that uh, it's really important for us to uh, understand is uh, how our lives are evaluated. In other words, what is it that God is looking for? Uh, and when God is looking to reward us, then exactly what kinds of things he looks for. And uh, because it's important, I want to spread this over a, a couple of teaching sessions. And uh, I've changed the way I normally would do this and looked at it from a different perspective, which we'll show you in a moment. Okay, so first of all, let's have a look at what is the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, I want to share several things around the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, the Bible talks uh, about two places of judgment. It talks about, uh, firstly, the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, secondly, in the, at the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about the great white throne judgment or the final judgment where believers and unbelievers are judged and uh, eternal destinies are worked out. But the judgment seat of Christ is uh, different to that. And this is the focus of today's study. So firstly, every believer, every Christian, every follower of Christ has an appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. Let's read a couple of verses in Romans 14, verse 10 to 12. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then it goes on, then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So those are the two key scriptures that refer to the judgment seat of Christ. There are several other scriptures in the New Testament talk about the judgment seat, referring to the same thing, but uh, uh, they, uh, the, the same word is used. But uh, these are the two scriptures that refer to the judgment seat of Christ. So notice here then, uh, it says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So notice there then, every believer must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's no exceptions. It's an appointment every believer will keep. And so you have ahead of you an appointment. I have ahead of me an appointment. It's an appointment uh, I have no way of avoiding. It's an appointment where I stand before Christ uh, at the judgment seat. So we do want to understand that. So there's, there's no exceptions to this. Every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the issue there is not sin. The issue is reward. The issue really is giving account of my stewardship as a believer after I got saved, or putting it another way, what have I done to follow Christ and uh, advance his kingdom uh, in the years that have gone by since I first made a decision to receive Christ? And so the judgment seat of Christ is a place of rewards. Uh, at the time of the judgment seat, each believer will be rewarded or they'll experience a loss. And this depends on how they live their life as a believer. And uh, so Jesus will evaluate our lives on what we've done. Notice there, we shall all give account of them. Uh, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Uh, each one receives things done in the body according to what he's done, good or bad. So notice then, at the judgment seat, we give account. Or in other words, we're called to stand before the Lord and he will look at every aspect of our life, of our service, what we have done and why we have done it, what motivated us. And what he's looking for is not to punish us. What he's looking for have we done anything that would qualify for eternal rewards? 
So Jesus will evaluate our, our lives based on what we have done. It says here in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment of seat of Christ that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done. And the word done there is the word Greek word presso. It means to practice or perform repeatedly or habitually. So it's, it's not talking about a single action in our life. It's talking about what has been the, the habits, what are the practices, what has actually been built into our lifestyle. So sometimes as believers, we can get up preoccupied with the single things that are happening with a, a decision that was a bad decision, decision was a good decision. We can get caught up with those things. What God is looking at is the practice, what we have report, performed repeatedly, which tells much about the condition of our heart inside. So every believer then has an appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, what is the judgment seat of Christ? What exactly is it? Now, the word that's used there is called bema. Uh, and the word, it's, it's often translated judgment seat. Uh, but it's used uh, in two, in, in the Gospels and in, in, in the book of Acts in two different ways. So firstly, it was the raised platform where a Roman magistrate or ruler sat and made decisions and passed sentences. So the Bema, it's literally the Bema seat or the Bema platform was an elevated platform where a judge sat and then they made uh, decisions and passed a sentence. We see that in Judge in John 19 verse 13 and in the book of Acts where someone sat in judgment. So it's a seat where decisions are made, legal decisions. Uh, the second use of it is a platform, and the most common use of it is a platform where the judge sat to evaluate the athletic contests, con uh, contests uh, like the Olympic Games. So in the public games, the contestants would compete for the prize under the scrutiny of judges, and they would make sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. So it was an elevated platform, the Bama seat, and they would observe how each runner ran his race. Did they obey the rules? Did they stick within the rules? Or are they going to be disqualified? So clearly, as you can imagine, if you're in Olympic Games, then someone is evaluating your performance. If you break the rules, you're disqualified, even if you ran what appeared to be a good race. So choosing that kind of image, we're all called to run a race. We're all in the spiritual race of sorts. We're all in a spiritual fight. Uh, we're all in a spiritual journey. And so at the end of the journey, then we are evaluated how we've uh, run our race, how we've fought our fight, how, what we've done on our journey. And uh, there's a couple of scriptures like that, uh, and they tell us about that. Paul wrote about that. So the, in, in, the, in the public competitions, what would happen is the victor uh, who had won or participated and he'd obeyed the rules and uh, he'd won, was led to the, the Bema platform, and there a laurel wreath was put upon his head as a sign of victory. And so the Bible is using this imagery of people who have been in a contest, been in a competition, they've been surrounded by people watching them, and now they come and are they going to be acknowledged with a reward or not? And so there's uh, two scriptures uh, written by Paul about this. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, no one uh, engaged in spiritual or in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of life that he may please him who has listed him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So notice there in that scripture, Paul is talking about our journey as being a warfare where we can't get entangled with things that everyone else gets their life entangled with. We must be focused 
on uh, pleasing the Lord, that we may please him who's enlisted him as a soldier. So you and I are in a warfare. We're, in a, we're part of the army of God. Uh, we've been uh, um, enlisted by Jesus Christ when we got born again. And so our goal is to please him. And so the only kind of warfare that pleases is the one where we engage and we're victorious. Anyone who competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So notice then, Paul makes it very clear, our life is like a fight, our life is like a race. At the end of his life, he was able to say, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, I have fought the good fight. And now is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, not only for me, but also for all who love his appearing. So he's using the image of a fight, a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare, a long warfare over like a more like a military campaign over the course of our life. And there's a reward to be received for successfully completing the campaign. He uses the illustration of a race we run and we have to stick to the rules and we have to run the race properly. And there's a prize to be won. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, he, ta- he talks about it again in terms of the race. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27. Don't you know that those who run in a race, everyone runs, but one receives the prize. So run or run in such a way that you may obtain it, obtain the prize. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. We do it for an imperishable crown. So I run not with uncertainty. I fight not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body, bring it to subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. So you notice there, he, he brings or raises that even as an apostle, even as someone who labored and worked and served the Lord, he's saying that I still need to keep my life managed. I need to discipline my body so it doesn't run my life. He said, I need to keep my life in order. And, and what he's saying is, if I don't, I could be disqualified. And the word disqualified then literally means to be uh, not approved of, to have failed or not passed the test. And so the Bema seat or the judgment seat then refers to every believer appearing before Christ to have his life and works evaluated to determine, do you qualify for eternal rewards? So then the Bema seat or judgment seat is the place of evaluation where you receive reward or you receive loss. And this is one of the most important teachings uh, really in the Uh, that we need to have as a foundation for our life is the understanding of the reality of eternal rewards, uh, eternal intimacy, eternal authority and ruling with Christ and expanding his kingdom, eternal glory. These are laid out in many places in the scripture. And so the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ is is the place where we will meet with him our life, our works are all evaluated and we either receive reward or we suffer the loss of reward, which we saw in 1 Corinthians 9. So the judgment seat, uh, uh, in the judgment seat of Christ, all our works will be tested. The judgment seat, all our works will be tested by fire. Let me read a, a passage of scripture also written by Paul. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 through to 15. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. 
And if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now there's a lot is written out in just that brief passage, but very clearly he's talking about the evaluation of our works at the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ. So let's go through a few things just uh, that this passage brings out. I encourage you to follow it in your Bible. The first thing then is the foundation laid in every person is Jesus Christ or every believer is Jesus Christ. The foundation of a building, what's the foundation? The foundation is the unseen structure. It's what the building is uh, constructed upon. And uh, so the, the, a building always rests on a foundation. You start with the foundation, then you build up. So the foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ himself and the finished work he accomplished on the cross. So our salvation and standing as a child of God is based solely on what Jesus did. And this is a really important truth. This is a, what you consider a foundational truth. And when this is laid, it never stops being the foundation, but you build upon it. So in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, and in other places, and Titus, for example, God makes it very clear that our, our salvation experience our being born again, our being joined to God and becoming a new creation is not based on any work we do. It's based totally on the work of Jesus Christ and our willingness to believe and trust at the cross. He paid the full price for our salvation. So there are no works involved in that. Uh, There's absolutely no works whatsoever. Notice what it says. By grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So no works to get saved. Salvation comes by putting our trust in what Jesus Christ has done. There's no work you can add to the foundation to gain more forgiveness or to gain more acceptance before God. So our entrance to heaven or our entrance to eternal life is not based on any work, uh, it, it's, it's based primarily, uh, it's based on the work of Jesus Christ. However, our status and role in the coming kingdom of heaven, that is determined by what we do. So we've got that then, the foundation that we have in our life, our relationship with God is built solely that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all our sins, was our representative, has offered to us eternal life, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith. So you notice it's the grace is the power of God saves us. It does a work in our spirit and cleanses, forgives us, gives us positioning and status before God. Now we're positioned where we can grow as a child of God into full sonship and into qualification for reward. So at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat of Christ, the issue at stake there is not whether you're saved or not. The issue at stake there, because all believers appear there, the issue at stake is what have you done with your life since you've been saved? What has happened? How have you grown? How have you related to God? How have you served people? How have you advanced the kingdom of God? That is, those are the questions that he will ask. So secondly then, each believer is responsible to build his life and fulfill his assignment from Jesus. So you can't put that responsibility anywhere else. Your life is your life. Your assignment is your assignment. 
God put you in a local church so that you have a family around you to support you where you can then have opportunity in a culture and environment to grow spiritually. He also uh, calls you to fulfill an assignment. We can't focus on discovering that or what that is all about right now. I'll have to deal with that later. So notice here that every believer is entrusted with an assignment in life that's unique to him. Here it is in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, meaning God is constantly working to build and grow you. So you are his precious piece of art. He is working on your life. You're not complete yet. It is created in Christ Jesus for good works. So when you create something, you manufacture it for a purpose. It is created with something in mind. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice it's saying we're his fine piece of art, we're his masterpiece, constantly being worked on by God. So your part is cooperating with the process of life transformation. You're responsible for the building of your life. Secondly, it tells us we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God has assignments prepared for each one of us. They are uniquely related to our passion, our gifts, uh, where we've come from, our journey. And it says God prepared those beforehand that we should walk in them. So they were planned by God for you to accomplish. You are brought into this world as a gift of God to the world and you have a work to do that will represent God and will bring blessing to others and expand his kingdom. And notice it says uh, that we should walk in them. In other words, this is a lifestyle, not just some simple thing or single action we do. It, a similar thing is, uh, uh, is uh, laid out by Titus in Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. It says that Jesus gave himself for us, and that's the work that he did on the cross, so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. So notice there we see salvation. He, Jesus gave himself to redeem us, redeem us, pay the full price to rescue us, as it says, from every lawless deed and to purify himself, his own special people. So notice then Jesus paid a full price, firstly, to rescue us from the power of sin, rescue us from the power of curses, rescue us from demonic spirits, and then that we might be purified or set apart or made clean, made holy to be his special people. And there it is, zealous for good works. So notice there, in both of those passages, Ephesians 2.10 and Titus 2.14, and there are others like that in Titus. Titus 3 also says a similar thing. Uh, we are created for good works. So God has d distinctly designed you, gifted you, and he prepares you to do some things which are unique through you to bring blessing to other people and advance his kingdom. So every person's gifts and capacities and life circumstances differ, and so too do our assignments. Okay then, now notice here in 1 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians 3 again. It said, if any man builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So notice now there are different types of materials we can use to build. So different, so like you can imagine a building, you have a building built of wood, you can have a building built of uh, bricks. Uh, there are many different ways you can build a building. So it's saying here in terms of our life and our ministry, we have to choose the materials we'll use to build. He says we can build with gold, silver, precious stones. They are building materials that will survive the fire. Or we can build with wood, hay, stubble. 
and uh, wood, hay, stubble, if you put a fire to them, are all burned up and consumed. They're just ashes are left. <clears throat> Frequently in the Bible, wood is used as a symbol of humanity. Uh, so when the Bible's talking about people who use the word wood, it may use the picture of trees. And so trees are symbolic of people. Wood is symbolic of people. And so interestingly, when you look at, the, like, for example, gold, gold is very symbolic or used consistently through the Bible to speak of things which come from heaven, things which are eternal. The city of God is paved with gold. Uh, when they made the tabernacle, the ark that would carry the presence of God, it was made of wood overlaid with gold, a picture of Jesus Christ in his humanity, but fully divine. So we see there. So notice there it tells us then uh, that Jesus, if, if it talks about different materials, then it tells us very clearly that Jesus is not just looking at the works we do. He's also looking at the kind of work, the motivation of our work. People can do things for many different reasons or motivations. Notice it says, uh, it says the fire will try the work, what sort it is. And that word sort means the quality, the nature of it. So, it, so, so when we come and stand at the uh, judgment seat of the Bema seat of Christ, then what's going to happen is he's going to evaluate, well, what did you do and what was the motivation? What was the quality or the nature of the work you did? And uh, so the next thing we see is that Jesus will test everyone's work with fire. What does that mean? Well, generally in the Bible, fire, the fire of God refers to the activity of the Holy Spirit, which exposes and consumes what's of no value. So it says he will test every man's work with fire, meaning somehow he will put it through a testing. The Holy Spirit will look at, evaluate. I'm not sure what the testing will literally be like, but it's very clear the testing will reveal every man's work what sort it is. Notice there the word reveal means uh, it's the word apocalypto, meaning to take the cover off something and reveals what has been covered or concealed. So, wow, that's pretty something, isn't it? It tells us very clearly then that God, uh, everyone's work will become clear. That word clear means to be plainly recognized, evident, or its true nature revealed. Was it uh, genuine, authentic love? Or was it an agendered purpose behind it? So we can't tell when people do things why they do them. People do things for many different reasons. But when the time of evaluation of our works, God wants to see not just what we did, but what sort of work it was. Was it a dead work or was it living work? What is the quality of the work? It says the day. So it tells us very clearly it's the day of the Lord. It's the coming of the Lord. And it says the day shall reveal the work. So everyone's work will become clear. The day will declare it or literally the day will make something plain or take the cover off it. So we see then the next thing is the fire of God will, whatever that refers to, we believe it refers to the Holy Spirit, will test and reveal the quality of every man's work. Here's a scripture regarding that in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Therefore, don't judge anything or judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. And then each one's praise will come from God. So notice it's saying, don't judge things before the time. There's a time when, when the Lord comes and he will bring out into the open everything, what people have done and why they did it. So the hidden motivations of the heart will be exposed to view, not to condemn people, but 
to see is this work uh, a work that is qualifying for reward or not. So any works that originated from a self-centered motivation, they're full of pride or there's a hidden ambition, there's self-promotion, that will all be exposed. And clearly this, is a, this was a problem Jesus found with the Pharisees. He said, when you pray, don't pray like they do. They pray to be seen of men. So notice the works, they pray, but the motivation, it's not for the honor of God. It's not for a priestly ministry. It's actually to be seen by people. And so he said, they have their reward now. People saw them. So notice then, they looked as though they did very spiritual and many people are like that. They can look very spiritual. They can speak very spiritual. But God looks on the heart what the true core and true nature of it is. So the hidden motives of the heart will be revealed. Notice when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about giving. He said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Meaning, in other words, do your, work, do your giving secretly. He says, not like the Pharisees do. They do it, every, they do it to be seen by men. So... We can do our works secretly and quietly out of love and out of inspiration by the Holy Spirit, uh, being directed by God to do things, or we can do it uh, with a different motivation, the same activity, different motivation. We can do it with a motivation to be recognized, affirmed, or uh, celebrated by people. What great person you are. So you see then, God is not just looking at the works. He's also looking at the motivation of the works. Are these works of divine origin and nature? Uh, gold, silver, precious stones are these works of human origin and human nature. They're the wood, hay, stubble. Are these works uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and with a pure love with no uh, a hidden motive? Uh, these are gold, silver, precious stones. Or are these works uh, done and it's just you trying to get yourself ahead and trying to impress people? Wood, hay, stubble. See? And so the Holy Spirit will test and reveal exactly what it is. So works which are evaluated upon whether we're building our own kingdom or whether we're advancing the kingdom of Jesus and his concerns. And uh, Paul wrote, uh, I think in Timothy, he wrote that everyone seeks their own and not the things which be of Jesus Christ. So God is looking people who have a heart after him to bring pleasure to him, to please him. And uh, we should, in all that we do, seek to please him, not please people. So here's the next thing then. If our works endure Jesus' scrutiny, we receive reward. Uh, also, if they don't endure his scrutiny, then we lose reward. So works that are done out of love for Jesus, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and have a pure motive, then they're going to be rewarded. So uh, notice there, he says, if our works endure, then we receive reward. And uh, the judgment seat of Christ is exactly that. It's a place, it's the Bema seat, it's the place of awards, it's the place of eternal judgment, the Bible tells us. So in, in the Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, it talks about the foundational doctrines of Christ, and one of those is eternal judgment. So the judgment that's made at the Bema seat of Christ is a final judgment. There's no reversing it. In other words, once the decision's made, you can't make a change in the outcome. Even if you're sorry at that point, it's too late to do anything about it. So another way of looking at it is this. If we live on earth for 70, 80 years, 90 years, this period of time passes by very quickly, then everything we do once we become a believer, start following Christ, is being uh, kept a record of, or God keeps a record of, knows exactly what we've done and why we've done it. And all of this 
is laying up either a reward in heaven that qualifies us, uh, uh, it accumulates and it qualifies us for reward for eternity, or what we've done is not been of divine nature. We still never have changed from our self-centered orientation. So think about that. Those kind of works won't receive any reward, won't be acknowledged in any way. They'll actually be burnt. So this is very, very significant for us. So God's desire is not just that you be saved. That's the first step that puts you back into the, into the family of God. But his purpose is that we grow into the image of Jesus Christ. We bego- grow to become like Jesus Christ in our nature. And that, that requires a daily putting off the self-centered nature so we can actually live out of a desire to please God and out of a relationship with him. So the last couple of things there is uh, our rewards will determine how we spend eternity. This is really important. So for all eternity, we'll be known by how we lived our life on earth. How about that? You can't kind of say, well, I got to the judgment, I got through and I'm okay. No one will ever know. It's just between me and Jesus. No. In Revelations 14, 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Their works follow them. In other words, in some kind of way, it will be acknowledged for eternity, the kind of life we have lived on the earth, the kind of way we've honored Jesus Christ, the kind of character we've developed and formed. Our works will follow us. So notice then, if our works are burned, we will suffer loss and we cannot reverse it. If we're disqualified from receiving our eternal inheritance, sitting with Jesus on the throne, ruling with him, there's no way we can change it. So these rewards are eternal and they are irreversible. They determine not just whether you get into heaven, they determine the quality, status, standing that you have in that kingdom, the level of intimacy with Jesus, the level of responsibility and authority, and the level of glory that you carry. We've seen this in the previous studies. So if our works don't endure Jesus' scrutiny, then there's going to be a loss. So notice then the Bema seat, the judgment seat, is the place of reward or the place of loss of reward. So that's the key thing. Every believer will stand there. Every believer has the appointment. And uh, at that appointment we have with Jesus, we will exit that with rewards, where Jesus acknowledges in the most generous and abundant and totally out of proportion to what we've done. He will acknowledge what we've done and with rewards, which are eternal. Or on examination, we will find our works don't qualify. So let's read then. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though so as by fire. So notice the person we're talking about, only believers appear before the Bema seat of Christ, and at the other side of it, they are saved. The question is whether their works after evaluation qualify for any reward, or whether actually we will suffer loss. What does it mean, suffer loss? It means to experience uh, some detriment or to lose and forfeit what God had prepared for me. And Paul talked about it uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where he feared having preached to others, he might be disqualified, not meeting or approved or meeting the required standard or standing up to the test. Uh, in, the, in the letters to John, John speaks about it too. 1 John 2 verse 28, and uh, it tells us this, Now little children, abide in him, that when he appears, that's the coming of the Lord, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 
So notice that it tells us there that it's possible we'll have total confidence and boldness and not be at all shamed when he comes. But the opposite is also true that when he comes, we may lose all that confidence and we may be quite ashamed. Let me read it for you in the Amplified Version, 1 John 2.28. Now little children, believers or dear ones, remain in him or, or, or remain in relationship with him with unwavering faith so that when he appears at his return, we may have perfect confidence and not be ashamed or shrink away from him at his coming. Wow. So notice it tells us then, abide in him so we're not ashamed and draw back because we're embarrassed about our condition. So he tells us that or warns that. He says, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to abide in Jesus. The consequences of abiding in him will be a fruitful, productive life, bringing forth fruit that qualifies for reward. The result of not abiding in him means that at his coming, we will be acutely embarrassed by the kind of life and what we have to present to him. So that's a very huge challenge and a challenge for us not to live as lukewarm believers, but to live passionately full on for the Lord. So what does it mean to abide in him? What does it mean to abide in him? The word literally means remain or to closely be connected or closely joined. It means to have fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, remain in close union with him. Another way of putting it will be like this. It means to draw on his life as the source of our life and to obey him out of the relationship we have with him. So abiding, he, he, Jesus spoke in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and uh, let my word abide in you and you'll produce good fruit, fruit that remains. So notice abiding then is an issue of personal relationship and it's also an issue of responsiveness to his words. So abiding in him, we abide in him and let his word abide in us. To let his word abide in us means we take seriously what Jesus has to say and we do the best we can to apply it to our life. And now if we don't do that, of course, the opposite to that is we find we're not abiding. Our, our life with him is very sporadic or up and down. And it says we'll be ashamed at his appearing. The word ashamed means to experience a loss of honor. So we'll put it, we'll put it like this that when Jesus appears, the revelation of what our life has been like, what we prioritized, what we considered important, why we did things, how we did them, our motivation, then when this is all uncovered, we will be aware of our failure to live the life Jesus planned for us and the enormity of the loss of eternal rewards of uh, intimacy and honor and, uh, and glory and authority. And so we will suffer and experience feelings of shame, uh, of disappointment, of grief. Uh, now, these will not be permanent. The status will be permanent, but the feelings won't be because the Bible tells us in Revelation 7, 17, it will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So I think that there will be a moment of realization of what we have done with our life, of the opportunities wasted and lost, and the impossibility of now recovering that and the consequences of what we've lost for eternity, I think there will be immense grief and there'll be immense shame over that. Uh, however, the shame and the grief won't last forever. It'll be like a, a thing that happens and then we will see as we look at the evaluation that God is a just God, that he has done what is right and we will accept his judgment concerning our future. Wow. 
Well, there's a huge amount just in, the, in that, that, those few passages that we've shared. But we want to go on and take the study further because that raises then the question, well, how will Jesus evaluate our works? How will he evaluate our works? Now, I've looked at this in a number of, a number of times. I've taught on it, but I felt the Lord has given me a different perspective in looking at it. So I want to share with you how I believe God looks at our works. And remember, if you're trying to do this naturally, this is just how are you going to, how long would it take to work out someone's life? But this will all happen just a moment of time for us because in the realm of the spirit, time is not there to, to hinder us in any way. So how will Jesus evaluate our, our works? Let me share with you four things just related to that. And uh, the first is we need, to, we need to find out what pleases the Lord. In other words, one of your roles now you're a believer, one of your responsibilities is that you discover what pleases the Lord. You know, because relationships are meant to bring pleasure to us. God designed us. He created all things for his pleasure. So God created us for his enjoyment. So God, some things bring God pleasure. Some things bring God enjoyment. And we find that with, for example, David you know, say, I delight to do thy will, O God. In other words, he delights to bring God pleasure. And uh, we find in God's assessment of David in, uh, in Acts, how God says, he said, I have found a man after my own heart who will fulfill all my will. So notice that God has been looking for someone who has a desire to bring pleasure to him and participate or partner with the Father in accomplishing his will. So, so I think that uh, the first thing is we need to set our, our lives, uh, the direction of our life, to discover what pleases the Lord. So we find that, say, for example, with Jesus, Jesus constantly sought to please his Father. In John eight twenty nine, he who sent me is, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So how about that? I always do the things that please him. So Jesus' whole life was focused around his father and pleasing his father. And he brought such great pleasure that on more than one occasion, the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, or he brings me great pleasure. I am delighted in my son because of how he lives and what he does. Uh, Paul also spoke and he urged believers that we should seek to find, to, to please the Lord. Here's a couple of scriptures. Ephesians 5.10, talking about the will of the Lord, knowing the will of the Lord. It says, we find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Don't say you don't know. You've got a Bible and you can pray. Go and find what pleases the Lord. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing with him, to him. So you notice then that Jesus modeled a life lived to please his Father. So you can live to please yourself, you can live to please people, or you can live to please God. So who is it you're living to please? Wow. If you live to please God, it'll put you in conflict with your own desires at times. It'll also put you in conflict with what other people want. Uh, in, uh, for example, Paul wrote in Galatians 1.10, he said, if I seek to please men, I cannot be the servant of God. Or putting it another way, if I, if I make my priority to keep people happy or to please people, then I won't bring pleasure to God because I'll be in conflict with him. So here's the third thing about that then is pleasing God requires we walk in faith. Pleasing God requires you trust him. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
or put another way, without trusting God, believing and allowing that belief to be worked out in our life, it's impossible to please him. So faith is the bottom line. I must plus it. For he who comes to God must believe he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's crucial then that I exercise faith, that I live a life of trusting God, hearing God, because faith comes by hearing God. And then fourthly, related to this uh, thing, uh, of, bring, of pleasing the Lord. Pleasing God requires we be led by the Holy Ghost. So pleasing God requires we be led by the Holy Ghost. In Romans 8.8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So notice, no faith cannot please Him. Impossible to please Him. And living in the flesh, living according to our mind and emotions and circumstances, we cannot please God. So if we want to please God, we must have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And if we want to please Him, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We must be in the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Well, there's just some challenges right there. And you could find, if you were to search the Bible, a whole number of things which are the will of God and which please Him if we do them. So I'll leave you to search that out. So here's the second thing related to, then, to Jesus evaluating our work, is God's eternal purpose is the plumb line for evaluating our works. God's eternal purpose is his plumb line for evaluating our works. In Amos 7 verse 7, Amos got a vision, a prophetic vision. He said, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line and with a plumb line in his hand. So notice a plumb line. He saw a vision of the Lord on a wall uh, and the wall, and he had a plumb line. So what's a plumb line? Well, a plumb line is just a, 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 it's a weight that's attached to the end of a cord and gravity pulls the weight down. So when you hold the plumb line, it goes directly down and gives a vertical line. So plumb lines are used in construction buildings and they judge whether walls are upright or not. So always there needs to be a plumb line. And so God measures the quality and success of our works. Do they align with his eternal purpose? Do they align with his standards? God will never deviate from his uh, standard for measuring success, and that is his eternal purpose. So you can consider success in all kinds of ways. You might have all sorts of ideas of what success is, but real success can only be found in, in fulfilling God's will for our life. So there are many aspects, or there are several aspects to God's eternal purpose. Let me give you two of them. Uh, Jesus Christ will be at the center of everything in heaven and earth. So, so in Colossians, it tells us that Jesus will have the preeminence in all things. In other words, one part of God's purpose is to bring honor to his son, Jesus Christ, by giving him preeminence over everything. So one part of my life is then to be a line that in everything, Jesus has preeminence. Secondly, Father is extending his kingdom through a family of overcoming sons, exactly like Jesus Christ. So we see then another aspect of God's, of God's uh, eternal purpose is that he is building a family of sons like Jesus who would expand his kingdom. So you then see the eternal purpose is, is that Jesus Christ will be at the center of everything, have preeminent and prominence in everything. And secondly, that God is building us to become just like his son, which brings him such pleasure, and to work with him in expanding his kingdom. So you can see then that this is what God's purpose is. So he's not going to bring blessing on what you think is good. He's not going to put blessing on what you think is right. He's going to bring blessing upon the things which are in agreement with and in alignment with his overall plan and then his specific plan for you. 
So in then in evaluating our works, we need to see, the, the next thing we need to see is the importance of our heart. The importance of our heart. The importance of our heart. Uh, most people just look on the outside. So example, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord <clears throat> looks not as man looks or sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. So notice then that when God, that Samuel is evaluating the sons, uh, to, uh, which one of the sons might be the future king. And they looked good. They appeared to be good. They looked to be qualified. However, God says, don't look externally. Don't look at what they appear to be. God looks on the heart. So everything that we do, God looks on the heart. So for example, uh, Jesus was in the temple and he watched the people doing their giving and he saw that some people came along and they put in a lot of money and saw another woman and she came along and she put in two little mites with just a very small amount of money. And he said, she has given more than all of them. Well, what is he talking about? Well, this one gave out all this money and she only had two mites. But, but he said, oh no, I weighed up what this meant to them. And for this woman, this is her whole livelihood. So you understand then, being poor, having few resources or anything does not disqualify you for great eternal rewards. These wealthy people that had much and gave much, they still didn't, in proportion to what they have, give what the little lady gave. She gave her whole life. She was had such a love and a passion for the Lord that she gave her very best to Him. So God looks on the heart, what place, uh, what is going on in our heart in relationship to our activities. Uh, in uh, Proverbs 16, 2, it says, All the ways of man are pure in his own life, eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits or heart. So in other words, we think we're doing well, but God really looks at what's going on in our heart. So when God looks then, it's not just what we did, or how it appears, he looks at the heart and the motivation. So now we're starting to get a basis of how God is evaluating our works. He looks exactly at what we've done, and he looks also at what has been the driving motivation, the life flow from within it. How much of it has been uh, birthed out of relationship with Jesus and is an overflow of that relationship and how much of it is come out of self-centered purposes or self-promotion purposes. So very, very important. So in all of this, uh, uh, son, God is using his son, Jesus Christ, as the pattern. So remember, if you're going to try to build something, you want to have a pattern or a model or a plan or, or something. So Jesus is the pattern son. Uh, it tells us in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. So that tells us Jesus is exactly like God in his nature and character and his makeup. And he's the firstborn of many. Okay? In, uh, in Hebrews 1.3, he, he being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Uh, said when he pur himself purged us and sat down at the right hand of God. So notice then, Jesus is the express image of God. Jesus is actually the pattern upon which you build your life. So if you build your life on people, they will always let you down. You will always find a measure of disappointment. You will always see them come short. So we need to make Jesus Christ the center. We are following Jesus Christ. And even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. See, notice there that if he wasn't following Christ, then there's no reason to be following him. So when we, when we put 
Uh, often people put too much in men. We tend to make idols out of men. We want people to be perfect when they're not perfect. The only one that's perfect is Jesus Christ. So build your life on Jesus the pattern. How does he lead you? What example did he give? What did he teach? What is he saying? How is he guiding you in all of this? And if you do that, you won't get offended at the way when people fail. And we've gone in our journey, we've seen uh, pastors who've been over us fail in immorality. We've seen people around us fail. We've seen many, many people fail over the years, but it never stopped us pursuing the Lord and our calling in Him because our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. And even in the book of Hebrews, it said, you know, let us run with patience the race that's set before us. You know, it said, uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ, you know, who's the author and finisher of our faith. So set your eyes on the Lord. Now, it also tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now, what is a corner? Let me give you the scripture. Uh, this, Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. And uh, it said, Let it be known to all of you people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And now this is saying, this Jesus is the stone which was rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. There's no name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. So notice then he's saying that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by the religious leaders who were supposed to be building the people of God, and uh, but God has made them the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He whoever believes on him will not act hastily. So uh, what is a cornerstone? Uh, we need to understand a cornerstone. A cornerstone uh, in those days was the most important part of the building because the whole weight of the building rested on that stone. And if it was removed, the structure collapsed. So the, uh, the, the, the stone was very, very important. And uh, the cornerstone was also the keys to keeping the, the walls straight. So when, when they were building, they would take sightings along the lines of the stones and they would line all the walls up on the cornerstone. And if everything is lined up correctly on the cornerstone, then all the angles will be right. The building would all meet together. It would become a solid building. So we need to see then that when it comes to evaluating our works, looking at our works, uh, firstly, we need to discover what pleases God, what brings pleasure to Him. Two, that His eternal purpose is a significant foundation for, uh, or the way, it's the plumb line on which our works are evaluated. Uh, that God considers the motive of our works and he also considers uh, how it relates to Jesus Christ. Have we been formed to become like him? Are we operating in sonship like Jesus did? Are we being conformed or how much have we been conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? So therefore, looking then at the whole issue then of, uh, of, uh, of how God is evaluating, we see primarily he's looking on the heart and, and he's also looking how does this relate to, compare to, line up to my eternal purpose and also to the patent sun that I put out in front of everyone? So uh, that means it requires that we commit our lives to a life of intimacy. So in looking at our lives, we said the first and most important thing then is intimacy. Intimacy. <laughs> intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy, having a surrendered and pure heart. So that's something you can do. No matter what stage, state, no matter how much wealth or little wealth or how much gifts or little gifts you have, every person can commit to intimacy 
and develop or cultivate and grow a surrendered pure heart because that's what intimacy does. Uh, it, it develops in us a surrendered and pure heart. So I believe that Jesus is looking for works that are flowing out of intimacy. The primary thing he's looking for are those things that flow out of intimacy. Now, he won't overlook anything we do, but what he primarily looks for are things that come out of a surrendered and a pure heart. So works uh, motivated by intimacy with Jesus and surrender to his spirit with a pure heart. So what does it mean, a surrendered heart? See, remember, surrendered heart, your heart is your motivation. Surrendered means to yield the power of control to someone. So in worship, as we worship, we surrender to Jesus. And we're not just surrender to Jesus, we surrender to his will. It's an expression of humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord, humbling ourselves to recognize him. So a surrendered and a pure heart is a humble heart. So, so intimacy with Jesus means humility, developing a humble heart, a surrendered heart, a pure heart. So what is a pure heart then? A pure heart means <clears throat> no hidden self-centered agenda, no hidden expectations behind what we do, no impure motives. See, So a surrendered heart means I'm yielded to Jesus. Uh, I've humbled myself to surrender to him. And pure heart means that there's no hidden agendas, that what I do is pure. There's not, there's not a mixture in it. God doesn't like mixtures. So sadly, we can be motivated by many other reasons than sacrificial love. Uh, so Jesus said, it's what's in your heart that defiles. What comes out of your heart is what defiles a man. So we can have heart motivations that defile. Think about that for a moment, that we can do things the right things, but for the wrong reasons. We can do the right things, good things, but with wrong motivations in them. So God is weighing up not just what you did, but the why you did it. What was driving it? See, Jesus was moved by love. He was moved by compassion. He was moved by the Spirit. He was moved by obedience to God. And notice the key thing is whatever Jesus did flowed out a heart of love. However, You'll find, of course, and you've already come across this, that the heart motivations that defile people, there can be many. Let me give you a few. And uh, uh, some people are motivated by guilt. They've, they've failed somewhere in their life, and a lot of their activities, they look like they're good, they look like they're sacrificial, but they're actually driven by guilt. There's a pressure in their life of guilt that's motivating the actions. For some people, it could be a false burden of responsibility. Maybe they had a, a parent failed as an alcoholic or a drug addict or abandoned the family. And then the child has stepped up and felt, well, uh, for, the, for fear of what might happen, I need to take on the responsibility. Or maybe as the parents put it on them. You've got to be the son now. You've got to be the responsible one. And so the, all their life, they've carried this burden of responsibility. And this, in, in the end, makes them a rescuer in their relationships. They, they take over things, not because of love, which would make people responsible for their lives, but out of a sense of responsibility or fear of what may happen, and so they end up rescuing people. For some people, what moves them is the fear of being rejected. So they do things because they fear if they don't do it, they'll be rejected. They won't be approved of. They won't be accepted. Uh, this can be a big thing in some families and some cultures. Uh, for some people, they do it out of duty. 
they're just a duty person. When you do things out of duty, you do it because it's the right thing to do, and you don't, no one feels the love in it. <laughs> the job was done, but there's no sense of love. There's no fragrance of Christ in it at all. There's no sense of the presence of God. It was just, I did my duty. Well, I did what I needed to do. And, and, and no one doing, acting that way produces life. It's just you did what was right. Uh, some people do things out of resentment. So they're doing it and they're reluctant to speak up and out that they don't want to do it. And so they do it with resentment. They do it with a grudge. And uh, when people do works that are resentful, they, the work may look good, but it's got a wrong motivation. There's a, there's a polluted river flowing through it. For some people, they do it. It's a religious work. And, and churches, sadly, are full of religious works that are completely dead. And uh, religious works are, are works are done, and they're done out of the law. They're done out of obligation, duty. They're done out of uh, to please people. They're done out of because I'm afraid of what will happen. I may be shamed or put to shame if I don't do it. And so religious duty or religious spirit can put a burden on people to function and do things. And all they do has got no life in it. And there's no eternal value in it because it's, it's not motivated by the love of God. For some people, they're driven by what's called performance orientation. They, they're, they've never been affirmed, never been loved, they've, their heart's been broken. Uh, perhaps they always were never good enough and they believe in their heart, I, I, nothing I do is good enough. And, and so they, they, orient, their approval came when they did something. And so their whole life, it's all about doing, 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 because of a core need in their life for validation or for acceptance that was never given to them. So they're, they're operating out of a broken heart. Uh, some people can do it out of rejection. They're rejected, so they do things because they're rejected. Some people do it out of pride. They want to appear before men to look good. And uh, some people desire to look good in front of everyone. So what they're doing is carefully, usually carefully selected to impress the person who can promote them. Now, you have all seen those kind of activities. Every one of us have seen them. And the Bible calls them dead works. Hebrews 6.2, the foundation of our faith in Christ, we build repentance from dead works and faith in the living God, towards faith in the living God. So you notice then we are to repent from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are works. They're things that people do, but they're done not out of love. They're not done out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're not done out of a pure heart. They're done out of all these wrong heart motivations. So when you look at that list of heart motivations, they tell you that the person's heart is broken. They're damaged in their heart and they need heart transformation. And we saw as we looked at sonship that intimacy with God is the primary driver of everything, the primary part of our design. Works are part of our design. We all have an assignment. But the third thing is that God wants to change and transform our heart to be filled with love, to be healed, filled with love. So what flows out of our heart into our activities and into our relationships and into our walk with God is a flow of love. So only out of intimacy can we discover what God wants us to do. Only out of intimacy do we become empowered to do what he calls us to do. Only out of intimacy do we have encounters with the love of God that move us to operate out of love. Now, so intimacy means having then a surrendered and a pure heart. And Jesus modeled what this is like and taught it. He not only modeled it, he surrendered to the Father's will. He taught an intimate life and he's looking for this. Let me give you a few examples. 
so, for, so, so let's look at the example of Jesus and his own life, his own work and ministry. And uh, the first thing is he modeled intimacy with God. Start to read through Mark and Luke, how, Jesus' prayer life. For example, Mark one thirty-five. Now in the morning, having risen a long way before daylight, he went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So there it is, Jesus modeling intimacy. That's why the disciples said, teach us to pray. And uh, so Jesus, in, even in teaching them to pray, showed them exactly uh, what it means to pray. And uh, he said, Father, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you notice he said, your Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's intimacy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a surrendered life. So Jesus taught the surrendered life that we come to God in intimacy and surrender and humility, and then we firstly align with his will. We surrender to his will. Uh, Jesus uh, himself indicated how he surrendered to the Father's will. In John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Luke 22, 41, he, when he was withdrawn about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, it's your, if it's your will, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So notice then, it's about surrender and intimacy. So Jesus modeled surrender and intimacy, humility. He, he modeled surrender to the Father's will, and then he taught about it. And so Jesus then looks for works that are motivated primarily by love for him in response to his spirit. And uh, we need, that's what he's looking for. If he's looking for that, that's what's bringing him pleasure. So that, that has several outcomes. <laughs> uh, let me just share with you a couple of outcomes of that. The first is we need our own personal relationship with Jesus. We need our own personal relationship. You've got to commit time. That's actually an effort and a work to build prayer life. So, for example, Jesus taught about the, in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, about the five wise and five foolish virgins. Now, notice they're all virgins. They're all believers uh, but five were wise and five were foolish. They were all virgins, all had lamps, all had oil, all, all were waiting for the bridegroom. They were all believers. And it says, uh, the foolish said to the wise, verse, uh, Matthew 25, 8, Give us your oil, our lamps are going out. And they and the wise answered, say, Not so, lest there be not enough for us. Go to the, them that sell and buy for yourself. In other words, you need to do the work. You need to pay the price to have the oil of intimacy. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage, and the door was shut. So you notice here, here's an example of reward and loss. The, the others, the five foolish virgins, came later on and were denied access. So it's talking here about the reward of intimacy, and what, uh, the reward of eternal intimacy. And, and what, what did Jesus teach clearly in that parable? How important it is for us to invest in our relationship with Jesus. Don't just get busy doing works. The primary thing is to ensure that the works we're doing are coming out of a relationship with him. They're empowered out of the overflow of that relationship. So every believer uh, is, must commit time and energy and make a sacrifice to buy the oil of intimacy. This is a work. It's a work. I mean, getting up to pray, spending time fasting, spending time with God. This is an activity. This is a work we do. That's not a burdensome work, it's the, but there is a work in it. Every believer, for example, is called to be a priest, and, and our priesthood is an important part of our kingdom work. And what is a priesthood? A priest is a person who comes to God, they offer prayer and worship and intercession, and they get empowered by God with ability to be able to then bring blessing to others. 
So every believer is called firstly to a priesthood to be a minister to God in worship and in intimacy and then everything we do flows out of the work we've done in our priesthood. So your priesthood is your first ministry. The priesthood to God is your first work which empowers and changes everything. Okay. The second thing about then the works is that without love making, uh, motivating our works, then they have no eternal value. And this is perhaps something difficult to get a hold of, but let me just show you just clearly from Scripture. Without love, without the love of God, the agape, the sacrificial uh, love of God, motivating our works have no value. So when God looks at your works, what to what level is love motivating them? So let me show you scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2 and 3. Though I have the gift of prophecy but un- and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, I can do miracles and all kinds of things, and I could remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feel the poor, wow, that's sacrificial. Though I give my body to be burned or sacrificed as a martyr, whoa, that's amazing. But have not love? It profits me nothing. So notice then he's saying, without love flavoring what we do, then our identity is we haven't actually become anything. And it doesn't have any value for us in eternity. We are called to be like our Father, and we're called to love people like our Father loves with no hidden agenda. Wow, that's pretty challenging, isn't it? We must pursue God and pursue the love of God and then release that love to others. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's another thing then that shows the importance of love. Here it is. Without love, our works are no different to an unbeliever's works. Wow, let that sink in. Without love, our works are no different to an unbeliever. Here it is in Luke 6, 32 to 35. Luke 6, 32. If you love those who love you, what credit or what grace or what empowerment by God is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, or what grace is that to you? What, what credit, what thank? Even the sinners do the same. If you lend from those you hope to receive back, what grace is that? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Wow, so what he's saying is, If you only love people because they've loved you, you're acting as a response. There's no big deal about that. You don't have to be saved to do that. If if you do good only to the ones who do good to you, well, you're just repaying them. You you know, you're indebted to them. So what credit is that? So even sinners will do that. If you lend and you always want to get something back, what credit? Even sinners will do the same. It's what he's saying. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Now, there it is right there hoping for nothing in return. In other words, when you love people, when you do good, when you lend or give, there's no hidden expectation that they are indebted to you. The love you've given is totally free of any hidden agendas. Otherwise, you're trading. You're giving this but want something back. And he's saying the nature of God's love is to give not wanting some, something back. Now notice, I'll read the verse again. Luke 6.35, Love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And, he says, if you'll do that, your reward will be great. Not a little reward, great reward. And you will be sons of the Most High. 
Why? Because he's kind to unthankful and the evil. So notice here what he's saying then is that if we operate like that, loving our enemies, doing good, leaning, giving, giving and serving without trying to extract a favor and entitlement or something back, then God sees it all. God will reward it greatly. And we are establishing we are sons of our father because we're representing exactly what he is like. And that's what sonship is. That's what God's eternal purpose is. That's what he's looking for. Will you be a son of the Most High? Will you act like your father? Will you be like Jesus Christ? Will you act like he acted and love people, love your enemies, do good and then hoping to get nothing back? So this is, this is a very, very powerful scripture. So when, when we do works which are motivated and empowered by love, it establishes two things. Number one, we've set it up for God to reward us. We will receive reward in heaven. And two, our identity as sons who represent our father in heaven. How about that? So we'll finish with just one last other thought on this. Many Christians, not a few, many will find their works rejected and having no value. Now, this is amazing. See, and we think, well, they did all these things. Isn't they need to be acknowledged? No, no. Remember, God is looking. Uh, he's looking. Did the works fit the pattern of divine design? And do they represent what Jesus Christ did? Are, are they following that pattern? So let me show you scripture. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my father. See, surrender. Uh, many, many will say to me in that day, many, it's not a few people, that's many people will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? So these are believers operating in the supernatural, they're operating in kingdom reality. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, Jesus in this passage is talking or referring to entrance to the coming millennial kingdom and the accompanying rewards. So, so the thing at stake here is the entrance to the kingdom, the coming kingdom, not operating in the kingdom now, but entering into the glory of eternal, re of eternal rewards. Uh, and he's saying here, many, it's multitudes of people. They will have experienced supernatural ministry. They've seen the power of the, the kingdom. But this is what Jesus uncovered. They lacked an intimate, surrendered heart. I didn't know you. That word no means to be intimate, deeply personal, intimate, because of building a relationship. So notice he uncovers the lack of an intimate, surrendered heart, and he uncovers their motivation. He says, you practice. This is a habit. This is how you're doing your life. You're practicing lawlessness. That means uh, without law, or, or, or virtually it means you're operating in independence. You're operating in pride. You're operating in self-promotion. That word lawlessness or iniquity refers to the reason that Satan fell, because he wanted to elevate himself. Or putting it another way, it's saying here, yes, I saw you did all those works and I blessed the people for my name's sake, but I saw why you did it. I saw you did it to build your own ministry, to build your own life, to build your own finances, to build your own reputation that you really didn't love the people, you really loved what you could get from the ministry. Wow, isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? Well, okay, we've gone on a little while. We need to come to a finish right now. So just a few thoughts for reflection then uh, that you need to ask, what has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you about in this teaching? What have you felt impacted you?
Take some time to think about that. Well, what action would you need to take in response? Thinking about the judgment seat that you, you're going to one day stand before the judgment, the Bema seat of Christ uh, for evaluation. How does that challenge you right now? What about your motivations? How are they challenged? I listed a number of defiling heart motivations that, that are moved out of things other than love. Are there any you could identify with? Perhaps you could go back over them and have another look at them. What changes would you need to make? Are there any areas you should surrender to the Lord? And I think the key thing here is, and this is why I brought this one out, is the need to develop an intimate intimacy, develop a surrendered and pure heart. We need a humble and, and surrendered heart and a heart that's become pure. And that's a journey to do that, but it starts with the first decision. So I believe for all the works that we do, God is going to pass them through the test of intimacy. Have we humbled ourselves and surrendered to the Lord's will and done things out of a pure heart of love? I trust this really helped you and uh, been a blessing for you and look forward to carrying on part two of this. God bless.